All right, so that about does it for me. And here we go with Living Writers. Good afternoon. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in. If you're if you're just joining us, which is like probably happening since it's the start of the program. No, you've probably been listening to WCBN FM all all day. Uh, but today, Jonathan Safran Four is here um, with his latest novel. Um, here I am on the table with us. Um, Jonathan, thanks for coming down to the studio. Thanks for whistling the intro. My pleasure. <laughs> it's the first time I've ever whistled for anyone other than the showerhead, I think. <laughs> so you whistle in the shower? Yeah, sure. And Doesn't everybody? Rather than sing. No. Rather than shampoo or wash myself. <laughs> <laughs> this, the water's not even on. <laughs> no. Oh, God. I, I never even thought of that. It's just for the acoustics. Yeah. <laughs> now it's great to whistle in the shower. I mean, you have to have good pipes, but I do. So uh, it seems like a triple or a double pun there to start off the show. I, I think is... it's easily a double and maybe a dirty triple. This is completely. This is like a very auspicious for living writers beginning. <laughs> or, or maybe we better just stop now because the rest it of the program, better. yeah. Uh. But it could get worse, folks. So stay, <laughs> stay here with us. Stay tuned. Um, before we go any further, I'm going to read. Um, Jonathan's bio, and then we'll, we'll fill in some pieces. We'll talk about the book. We'll, we'll hear um, uh, part of the prose of the book. Jonathan Safran Four is the author of two best-selling, best award-winning novels, Everything is Illuminated and Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, and a best-selling work of nonfiction, Eating Animals. He lives in Brooklyn and teaches at New York University. It's very thorough. <laughs> did you write that one? I didn't. That, no, no, you didn't? Okay. No. Did it's you... funny. Uh, somebody, I did a reading last night. and Oh, where were, where were you last night, John? Um, Detroit. Oh, awesome. And, which, uh, play, which place do you... It was at, a, at the a Jewish Community Center. Oh, cool. And the person who read the intro, um, I, I, we were sitting in the green room before, and... He asked me a question or two, and I said, "Oh, do you, is this for your intro?" And he said, "No, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read the intro you wrote." I said, "What are you talking about?" He said, "You know the one that you wrote that we're supposed to read." I guess the publisher had sent some like biographical information or something like that. But I was so humiliated; I felt so embarrassed. What was it? Like, was was it that? Was it what no, I just wrote? No, it was just wrote, some read? some nothing thing, like you know, oh. little information about. It. But the thought that this guy was walking around thinking that I wrote my own introduction. <laughs> Yes. And he had to read it. And he had to read it. <laughs> it was a horrible feeling. So what, like, did you say no, just say whatever you want? Or did he stick with the... Well, the problem with a situation like that, and I'll tell you another one like that in a second, is that you have to then overcompensate and not only say like, oh, read whatever you want, but you have to say, I'm a jerk. I'm an idiot. I'm stupid. Mention that in the introduction. You know, I, um, the other day, I, I came from New York on Monday morning. And I went first to Memphis and then oh, nice. Oxford, Mississippi, and then Detroit and here. And so Monday morning when I was going to go to Memphis, I looked at the little itinerary that my publisher had put together for where I'm going. And it said the name of the person who was going to pick me up from the airport. Let's just say her name was Susan. That was not her name. It's not her real name. Not her this real name. This is not about Susan. Um, 
And I said, could you please tell Susan when I get off the plane not to um, speak to me, not to look at me, and not to breathe in my vicinity? So I was obviously joking. And it was this poor like intern at the publishing house. And I thought, surely he's going to understand that I was joking, not breathe in my vicinity, you know? So I get off the car, Susan, get, get off the plane. Susan picks me up in the car. We're driving. I think it's awfully quiet in this car. You know, she hasn't even said hello yet. And, um, she have a sign so that you knew where to go. Okay. And then at some point she said, listen, I don't want to overstep. I know I'm not supposed to speak. (laughs) (laughs) And so then I got in a situation where I had to overcompensate. And I was like, tell me about your kids and grandkids. I'd love Uh to see some photographs. What's your favorite recipe? I was only joking. This is me proving it to you. Exactly. Exactly. I'm the nicest guy you'll ever pick up. Oh, and it's probably true. It, it might be. It's half but, true, yeah. Jonathan. It's yeah. true. What's the other story? What's the no, second that, one? That was the other story. Oh, that the fir- was? The first oh. story was the introduction he read. The second. Oh, okay. Yeah. These are stories of overcompensation. I, pro- I probably have many, many such stories. But... That's actually a great title for a short story collection. Yeah. Stories of overcompensation. Yeah. Yeah. Look for it on bookshelves in the year 2019. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe. 2029, but yeah. <laughs> 20, oh, no. <laughs> I was listening to something, one of the one of the many interviews that are out there now with you. Um, and I think you said, because what I thought was true was that this was like 11 years in the making. Here I am, you know. Um, but then what you said was uh, on this one interview was that you actually wrote it in, in three years. But it was, it was like it was 39 years in the making, but, but, getting, the but getting ready like to write it. Was that, uh... you know, it was it took me about three years from the time I started it or knew that I was starting the mm. book until the time that I turned it in. But the 11 years is the 11 years since I finished my previous novel. Yes. 11 years is a long time. It's almost it's so long that it the statement starts to lose its meaning. Right. You know, like I wasn't really the same person when I finished that novel. Um, I've always had this feeling when I write, and this is part of why it took me so long, that um, this kind of like little voice telling me that this thing you're working on now is the last thing you'll ever write. Not in the sense that I'm going to die, not in the sense that I'll never write another book, but the person who's writing it won't write another book. You know, when mm. I write my next book, I'll already be a different person. When oh, I, wow. I, when, I, when I look back at my first two novels... I'm proud of them. I'm glad I wrote them, but I don't feel that. I mean, I would never do it the same way again. And I feel only the most tenuous relationship to the person who did write them. You know, 11 years, think about yourself 11 years ago. Where were you 11 years ago? What were you doing 11 years ago? What about the characters themselves, though? Do you feel like a relationship or a tenderness towards them in a different way? Like a separate from you, but some connection to them? I don't. But I, but, you know, to tell you the truth, I didn't even when I wrote the book. It's just not the relationship that I have to my writing. Um, for me, it's uh, it's oh, maybe something close to the relationship like a painter has with the colors, something like that. Like I like the way that they together create this atmosphere or c- together create a kind of experience. Mm. But I don't know that I'm so invested in each one individually. Like I have friends who are writers who, you know, create little like spreadsheets or family trees for each of their characters like this is what this person would have eaten for breakfast as a kid this is what this person's great-grandmother was like information that will never find its way into the book but the idea is knowing all that stuff can only help can only inform like a full knowledge of this character i just don't feel that way at all in this book you know if you were to say to me and here i am 
What color is Julia's hair? I have no idea. Like, how tall is Jacob? I have absolutely no idea. I don't know anything about them other than what's in the book and having some sense of what they would do or wouldn't do or would say or wouldn't say. But what if other people have ideas about that? That's what you want to have happen. You want somebody to say, well, no, Julia has, you know, brown hair with streaks in it. You know, it really doesn't matter what I want because that will be the case. When a book goes out into the world, people don't, thankfully, people, I'm not there for people to say, was it like this or was it like that? Do you think it's like this? And often when I do a reading, if somebody asks me a a question where it feels like my answer will be definitive, Mm. I almost never answer because it's not it's not really for me to say. I don't mean that in some kind of flaky way like books have no meaning. I just mean it in the sense that if it's not what I was thinking about when I wrote the book, then I'm hesitant to give an answer because the answer would feel like a lie. It would feel like something that was created for the occasion of giving an answer rather than an expression of some kind of And there's truth. a pressure for that, right? Like to There is although I think also situations like Definitely, to... but I think people are also relieved when they don't get an answer, you know, relieved both because it's kind of empowering as a reader to remember that you are the keeper of the book's meaning. The writer isn't the keeper of the book's meaning. And also it allows something that is resonant to continue to resonate. When an author gives an answer, even if you disagree with it, it kind of closes the issue. And books are nice when the issue remains open. And so this connects to your process of drafting as well. Doesn't it? Like you, you're not like trying to, um, like you don't have an agenda when you're drafting the f- the first draft of the novel. Is that? Yeah, I don't have anything fair to say. Or it's totally fair to say when I write. You know, t- so the sort of writing has two parts. One is writing, and then one is editing. And I feel like I'm writing for, I don't know, nine tenths of the process. Almost all of it is writing. And when I'm writing, it's very open and intuitive and guided by just instincts. Like, this interests me. Okay, so I'll look into it. I'll think about it. I'll try to write about it. This is funny to me. I'll pursue it. This is boring. I'll stop writing it. People often ask me, do you try to write a certain number of words a day, a certain number of pages? And I always say, if I get to that point, then I'm completely screwed. Like, if I'm relying on willpower, why would I do that? You know, everything else in the world requires willpower, and and I and I do the best I can. Writing is a this one thing in life that's completely free. And if you're not exercising that freedom, if you're instead constrained by the the need to write a certain number of words, a certain number of pages, then you're it's undermining everything that's good about writing. So I write what I want to write and sometimes that makes the process really inefficient. You know, it takes a long time because I will just go off the path constantly. Which that actually sounds great actually, and productive and, um, and rich possibilities. Um, when you say the process is nine tenths writing, so then, and then you also said editing was the other part. The, so that's, would it be one tenth? (laughs) My math is poor, Jonathan. It's not the best. I've heard better. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, is that what you so are you saying that when you're writing the book you're generating it but you're not revising it. You're not spending, you're not like push pushing up the sleeves to be like revision isn't like the big part of the project. So there's two kinds of revision. One is There's always two things with you. I know. Okay. I know. My therapist would really approve. Um 
there's like a kind of generative editing and then there's a kind of intellectual editing. So when I write, I am always going back and fixing little things and adding, but it's not, it's, it's, it sort of feels just like writing. Like I'm just making more of everything. The, the kind of editing that I was referring to is the one-tenth is when I really have a full draft and I look at it and I say, what do I have here? What's useful? How can I make it the best novel rather than the best sort of act of expression, which are really different things. A good act of expression is not the same thing as a good novel. And I want to be a novelist. I don't want to be a diarist or a journal keeper. Um, so when I'm writing, I begin most days by going back through what I wrote the previous day. And working on it. So you could say that's editing, but it doesn't feel that way. It feels just like I'm continuing to write the same material. It's not until way down the road that I'm editing it in that kind of deliberate and like more critical way. And for you, for like, cause this is, this is a tome, right? Here I am. Like this is, there's so you're, um, oh, I should also thank Brian Giddis at, at the, um, at FSG for sending the books. Cause these are massive. They, and he sent two. <laughs> One for the Liz as well, and um, uh, and there's so it's so massive that I couldn't ride my bike here. I was like defeated by the size of the book. You should get a scooter. <laughs> um, so I drove. Sorry, Planet Earth, but um, but so when you're when so when you're generating, producing, like w we see here, like a very long, like we see something epic, right, in scope. Do you do you take out a lot? Do you ever restructure within this process in that one tenth or so, or what's it like for you for that, or? Are you sure that by the time you've drafted something, it is what it is, the size that it is, some tweaks? Um, well, you know, listen, before all readers get intimidated by that description, it's not that long. It's a long <laughs> book. It's not that long. Right. It's like yeah. 590, 580. There's a, there are long books in the world, and this is not. Don't, it's even, it's less than that. It's 571. 571. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then a note about the author. No, just what, what's the what's the expression? It's not the size of the ship; it's the motion of the ocean, right? Isn't that it? <laughs> right. this, I almost said show. it's not the length of the ship. Uh, <laughs> right, it's, it's, not, it's yeah. the waves. It's how you use it. That's right. Um, so, well, uh, yeah, no, I restructure all the time, and I cut out huge amounts of text. And on my um, computer, so usually I, I do the first draft, I type it, and then after that, I do it by paper, I mark it up. But on my computer, I have two files. One is called novel and one is called cast-offs, where I move the stuff that doesn't belong in the novel. Not not junk, but stuff that I thought was going to be in the novel that then isn't. And from the first day of writing, cast-offs is always bigger than novel. And by the time I get to the end of the book, it's much, much bigger. So it's not the case that everything goes at all. In fact, most doesn't end up in the book. What happens to cast-offs? Uh, it languishes. I mean, sometimes I, when I work on another project, I'll be able to find things from it that start to make sense in a different context. Every now and then something in it will make sense in a story. Sometimes it makes sense in a letter to a friend, but usually it's just there. It's just what it is. We're going to take a short break. Today on the program, Jonathan Safran Four is here. I'm T. Hutzel. You've got Living Writers. We've got the Liz behind the glass. And we've got Michelle Pernia here as a studio audience. We'll re be right back.
the kick him in the face Taste the body shallow Work is the work that I do Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on Living Writers, Jonathan Safran Four is here in the studio um, whistling, um, talking about Here I Am and uh, picking the music for today's show. Um, Jonathan, can you tell us a little bit about who we just heard? And Joanna Newsom. So I first heard her. It's actually funny. The first time I heard her, I had um, somebody who's staying in my apartment for a couple months. I can't remember where I was, but he was staying in my apartment and as a thank you gift he gave me a Joanna Newsom album and I just like listened to it once didn't think all that much about it she's a little bit of an acquired taste her her, her voice is not the most obvious kind of voice you know and she plays the harp and her lyrics are sometimes a bit inscrutable but I listened to it didn't think too much about it then a couple years later I was doing a reading for the New Yorker festival and they give a gift bag and her album was in the gift bag and I started listening to it again and I was just blown away, and I think she is. Um, I don't. I don't. There's no. She's the only artist in any medium who is in of my generation who I'm jealous of. Like the only, you know, it's not just there are plenty of people who I think are amazing artists, but I don't wish I were them. I'm just glad they exist in the world. I like what they make. I'm glad that I can read it. I'm glad that I can watch it. I'm glad I can listen to it. She's the only one where I think, mm, I wish I could do that. I don't, I don't mean I wish I could make her music. I mean, I wish that what I were doing could be as ambitious and as full and as smart and as um, emotive as what she does. How can you put a harp in your next novel? <laughs> uh, we'll see. Or I what's the equivalent? Like, what's that? Like, the amount, like, how? Yeah. She just has, a, like, a, a kind of irrepressible life behind what she does. Um, her lyrics are, they they put to shame most books, you know, most poems and novels. And... You know, one of my favorite works of art is a book called Life or Theater by a woman named Charlotte Solomon, who um, died in World War II. Huh. And it's a book that is, I think, 750. That, that's a long book if you want to talk about long books. But it's like 750 watercolors and gouaches that have text sort of mixed into them. So it's almost like a graphic novel. It's almost like a novel. Parts of it are almost like a libretto for an opera. Um what is sometimes said about it is that it's like a, a, a complete work of art. And also that if she'd only been a writer, she would have been a revolutionary writer. If she'd only been a music, uh, excuse me, a painter, she would have been a revolutionary painter. Huh. Um, and yet she was a total artist. And mm. I sort of feel that way about Joanna Newsom. Like if she'd only been a lyricist, if those had only been words without music, not much would compete. And, um, if her music had been only instrumental, not much would compete. And now I have a new book to look for as well. Yeah, good luck finding it, though. It's oh, way out of print. Really? Yeah. But you'll find it. <laughs> you <laughs> the can, internet was can made you send for this. me some pictures of yeah. it? <laughs> you can't have it, but uh, <laughs> look at these photos. What a tease. <laughs> yeah, terrible. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I love that idea of how um, you could be revolutionary 
in one way, but to do it for, to be it in both ways makes you more whole. Well, plus, you know what, but for you, you might already be doing that, right? Like who can say yet? I only know, I mean, I know when I write something that feels really good to me, you know, that feels complete and feels just, that feels like, um, I don't know, at, le at the very least, I know when I write something that feels like the best I can do. And I have not written a book that's like that. I have parts of books that are like that. And there are moments in this book that I'm really proud of. And I feel like I can't do better than that. You know, whatever, when I say better than that, I don't mean with using some like referent in the world or there's no scale. I just mean in terms of better in terms of being an active personal expression. It's nothing to do with the quality of the book, but better as an active personal expression. And there are moments in this book that are, that are, I feel that way about but, Would uh, the end be one of them? Maybe. With Argus? Maybe. Uh, it's hard to say because the end requires the beginning and middle. You know, mm -hmm. the end without all of that doesn't make any sense. So it's hard. It's hard to separate out parts of a book. Some there are parts in all of my books that are fragments. Um, like in this book, there's a chapter called the Bible, where a character who has written a TV show about his family has written an accompanying. Bible, like um, it's kind of reference work that is in the form of notes to actors who might one day play these parts, where he tries to explain, give the kind of backstory of the family, like what we were actually like. And it takes the form of how to play anger, how to play sadness, how to play the love of property, whatever. And so they're really self-contained. And those are easier for me to sort of appreciate outside of any context. And, and they were also so free. That's what I liked about that section is I could bring kind of anything into it. It wasn't dependent on, it didn't have any responsibility to advance a plot or to, yeah. More like play. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So when you are doing the process, it is, you are feeling like this responsibility to advance the plot, even though you're trying to keep it as open as possible to follow instinct or intuition. Definitely. And I sometimes feel dragged down by that. Like it's um, sort of distorting or perverting or corrupting the creative process. But more often it, it, it helps, you know, it, like, it generates ideas and feelings. The mm -hmm. um, Russian poet Joseph Brodsky once said that the, the rhyme is smarter than the poet. And what he meant, right. I, I, I think, is people write in verse not only because it's pretty, but because when you have to end a line with a word that rhymes with the one above, you, it has a, there's a problem, you know, and you're not allowed. You can't say just any old thing you would want to say. And the solution to the problem is often more interesting than what you would have done if you didn't have the problem. And so plot is kind of like that. Like you creates problems and often the solutions to those problems are more interesting than if I had, were just writing whatever came to mind. I love that. That's, that's very true. Mm. So true. Well done, Brodsky. Well done. It's a shame <laughs> and, you're not alive anymore. Yeah. And well done you for, <laughs> yeah. for thinking of connecting it and carrying it with you. Um, so so um, you've worked, you started your, your writing life um, in college? Yeah, I did. I went to college having no aspirations to write at all. Just it's, was not on the map. It seems like your your brothers are also writers too, though. Was it something that was being pumped into the atmosphere of the, the when you were being raised, or like, no. and it was just subliminal? No, neither. No? I think that it's funny. Not, I don't think any of the three of us 
really think of ourselves as writers. My older brother loves history and loves politics, but that you know you, you can't like buy dinner because you love history and politics. You have to do something with it and have a job. A vehicle. Yeah. For your history politics. Yeah. yeah. And so his vehicle was to, you know, find ways to write about it. And my little brother loves having a certain kind of really esoteric experience. Um, and uh, he has a great website called Atlas Obscura. I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's really wonderful. And um, It's a great title. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but again, like nobody, you can't pay at a restaurant with stories of, you know, hey, I went to this great country and saw this amazing thing. You have to make something out of it. So writing became the vehicle for doing those things. And um, it's the same with me in certain ways. Like There's a kind of personal expression I really value and want to spend my time engaging with. But, you know, if you're a diarist or a journal keeper, it doesn't pay rent. And so you need to find ways to or I need to, and my brothers need to find ways to craft our like interests or passions into something that's um, has a like a function in the world or a use in the world. And so, writing has been the vehicle. But I, we didn't grow up reading tons of books. We didn't grow up in a particularly literary environment. You were running around playing outside. Yeah, running around doing. I grew up in D.C. and we just did D.C. things. We rode like going to the Smithsonian. <laughs> going to Fugazi concerts, <laughs> um, you know, riding bikes like we had stupid jobs, like mowing people's lawns, and um, we just did neighborhood stuff. And we would watch crappy TV and play Atari. And <laughs> it was not we weren't um, pulling books from the shelves. Boys, boys, yeah. So it's so it sort of changed your life to meet Joyce Carol Oates. Yeah, she was a, a professor of mine in college, and I took a creative writing class just on a whim. You know, a lot of the classes I took were just on whims. Um, took abnormal psychology. I took introduction to astrophysics. I took <laughs> metaphysics and epistemology, um, and I took creative writing. And about halfway into the semester, I arrived early for class, and she arrived early for class. It was just the two of us. And she said, oh, I'm glad we have this chance outside of the context of class to talk. I wanted to tell you I'm a big fan of your writing. And it really was a revelation for me. Not only... What year were you? Freshman or sophomore. Really? So early days even. Very early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a revelation not just because she was a famous and great writer who was saying something nice, but because it, you know, really hadn't occurred to me there's such a thing as my writing. I just thought... I don't know, I, I write these little stories every week. We read them, we throw them away. I do the next one just like everybody else. I didn't know that they were taking a shape. I didn't know that they were recognizable as mine, that I had something that was in any way different. And um, to be, you know, I, I was really impressionable, just like a lot of people are at that age. And if my astrophysics or abnormal psychology or metaphysics and epistemology teacher had come up and said, I really admire your work, it would have meant a lot to me, and I might have, I might have gone down a different path. I don't know, but she took me under her wing and would write letters to me and tell me, "You should be reading this. You should be thinking about that. Here's what I liked about what you did recently. Here's what I didn't like." And it was an old-fashioned mentor. Those are the best. The well, she was the best, yeah. So you guys wrote letters back and forth to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we still do. And so, also, so well, the letters from the past would then be in her archives. Um, probably. It's funny. I 
one of my first jobs after college was I worked for a literary archivist. And um, what a what an interesting job. Yeah, and so he had me go through writers' papers, and I would put letters into different columns of like. Extreme importance, <laughs> some importance, no importance, whatever. You are the judge. Yeah. And we was doing the archive of a poet named Anne Lauterbach. And I came upon a letter that I had written to her. Yeah. Did you put it in extreme importance, I hope? I think I put it in my pocket. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a funny moment. So were you just writing letters to people? Like that, that actually reminds me, or... that reminds me of, a story, of a story I heard just two days ago when I was in... Um, Oxford, Mississippi. I went to Faulkner's house, and, and your I, nice bookmark. My nice bookmark. Yeah. And I heard this great story that the the guy who runs it was the, the sort of curator of it, I suppose. A director would told me that um, somebody, a scholar, became interested in Faulkner because Mario Vargas Llosa, the writer, loved Faulkner, and this person loved Mario Vargas Llosa, loved him, his biggest fan, and if Vargas Llosa loves Faulkner. I'm going to love Faulkner. So he read all of Faulkner and went to the Faulkner house. And there's a sign-in book as you leave. And he signed his name. And he saw the name above his name, Mario Vargas Llosa. He said, what? How could this possibly be? He was the last person who was here. And he looked around the house and Mario Vargas Llosa was in another room in the house. And he went and introduced himself and... You know, except I am here because of you. And here you are. Yeah. God. Yeah. That's awesome, isn't it? Yeah, it's wonderful. <laughs> it, it, all, it reminds me of Joseph Campbell, like the following your bliss thing. Mm -hmm. And somehow I want to say also Joseph Cornell, because mm. I feel like he might put that in a box or something. Could be. Yeah. Save it. Yeah. Um, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Jonathan Safran Four is here. Um, we'll be right back. The cause is Aussie. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Jonathan Safran Four is here in the studio. Um, we're taping the program. It's the 4th of November, 2016. Glad you're here listening with us. Um, God, how can it be the 4th of November, 2016? I remember, <laughs> I remember like, I mean, I remember like it was yesterday. I really, really do. My older brother, he's two and a half years older than me, um, than I. We, I remember trying to figure out how old we would be in the year 2000 oh. yeah and we had paper and pencil and we sat there and we figured it out and it just seemed impossibly far away 
Like, mm. I remember we even thought about it, like, if we were to live to the year 2000, this is how old we would be. <laughs> so you were, we lads then. I have to say, I also remember calculating what year it would be when I turned 40. And I'm going to turn 40 next oh, year. Oh, really? Yeah. And thinking, damn, I'll be quite old. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, at that time, when you, yeah. yeah. I thought I was going to die at 43. But I made it. You made it. <laughs> I made it. Then again, Trump could be president. Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and we'll be like this because uh, this is like a time warp moment where we'll be airing the show. Oh God, it's going to be so, so sad now if somebody listens to this and he's president to think that we didn't know that he was. You <laughs> know, how naive oh, no. and happy we were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just yeah. The last good them, moments. Listen to them laughing. Yeah. <laughs> With before puns the sky and... darkened. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Not everyone can move to Canada, right? I don't see why not. Or Iceland. Iceland is not wouldn't be my second choice. Really? No, Canada might very well be my first choice. Iceland, I don't think, would be my second choice. Do you choice. not like flying? I don't care for it, but um, they're just other places I'd rather be. Hmm. Nothing against... Reykjavik? Nothing against Reykjavik. <laughs> I've actually never been there, but it, I don't know. A... Me either, but it's my brother's, like, his favorite place ever. Mm. You know, takes took the family there they stayed in like an igloo hotel hmm. but this is besides the point i have you a know... good friend from iceland i must be really the only person in this room who does you are yeah. i think well in this <laughs> maybe if we, the the whole the, the, yeah. the greater metropolitan room yeah <laughs> <laughs> um before i'd love if you'd read for us um jonathan before you do that um i don't want to forget um so you're you're on the dust jacket <laughs> your author photo Jeff Mermelstein. Mm. Um, how did you get him to do your photo? Because he's a street photographer, right? Yeah, yeah. How do, I'm yeah. surprised you know who he is. Well, I teach a class that includes street photography uh, this term. So. so when my second book came out, and this was now, the year was 2005. <laughs> um, Time, no, no, New York Times Magazine did like a profile. And he was the photographer for it. And we spent a day together, and he had a point-and-shoot camera, hmm. and he took, I want to say, 32 rolls of film, and he never once looked behind his camera, and he had no lighting at all. So, you know, most so photographers... He was, snapping, he was snapping just, it as you were... Just, we would talk, we would walk, he would hold the camera out at a distance, and, you know, it was... Hmm. Uh, half of the pictures, probably, I wasn't even in the frame. That's how <laughs> casually they were taken. And, you know, photography can be quite precious, like a lot of light meters and little light umbrellas or whatever they're called. and Even makeup. <laughs> and makeup. And he was just the exact opposite of that. So casual. And he, I said, is this going to work? And he, he said, if I take enough pictures, we're going to get something that's out of this world, better than we could have planned. And it's a perfect, perfect example of the rhyme is smarter than the poet. You know, mm. like he was not constraining himself, being constrained by his own abilities. He was leaving the whole... He was he was open to the process. So when I needed an author photo for this book, I really didn't want to do it. I didn't want to have a picture at all, but I did not want to sit down and I did not want to have it. And I said, hey, I wonder if this guy, Jeff Mermelstein, could do it. And so we got back in touch with him and uh, he came to my house and we just sat around. He did exactly the same thing. Very, very casual. It, it happens to look posed, but... It was very casual. And did you get to pick it, or did he like give you? No, no, he sent me some, and we talked about it together. Oh. Yeah, he's cool. He's just a lovely guy. 
He's um, there's a great movie called Everybody Street, a documentary, and he's in it. Mm. So um, I feel like he's probably kept the 32 rolls of film that he took of you. Well, he has, and an it's inc- part of his archive. He has, an, and we had talked about that actually. <laughs> really? Yeah, he has just an. Um, he he shoots digital now, oh. um, but his digital archive is like it. You know, it sh- it crashes Apple or Google or wherever the hell it is. It's huge. <laughs> just enormous really huge Hmm. Uh, he has literally hundreds of thousands of photographs and do you feel like he was able to capture like um differently than how the other people did like some like essence or so so not trying to make it precious but actually having something real occur maybe so i mean you know i often when when i have to have a photo taken and I, i really have a hard time with it all the time i hear the same thing Loosen your jaw. Stop clenching your jaw. I say, I'm not clenching my jaw. Stop clenching. Your... I swear to God, this is what I look like. I'm not going to know. But I'm obviously clenching, you know, because I'm uncomfortable. Right. And um, with him, I, I feel comfortable. We're just because we're not really doing a photo. We're just sort of like two people interacting with with that as a medium. That's kind of lovely yeah. with that. And that's a, a, a connection medium. Yeah. There's these images that are. Huh. Of the time, but not yet made in the space or so, or made, well, yeah. But you know what? Let's get back to this, this book on the table because we haven't really, I haven't really even gotten there yet, have we? <laughs> um, so here I am. Do you want to tell the Abraham story? <laughs> I can. So, so here I am refers to a passage in Genesis, the sacrifice of Isaac, the binding of Isaac. Um, which begins, and then God put Abraham to the test. He said, Abraham, Abraham said, here I am. And God said, I I want you to sacrifice your beloved son. And so the test is often understood as the sacrifice. But another way to read it is that the test was how will Abraham respond when called? And then God put Abraham to the test. He said, Abraham, Abraham said, here I am. You know, would he say, what do you need? Would he say, give me five minutes? Or would he just say, I'm present? Yes. You know, whatever the question's about to be, the answer will be yes. And then a few sentences later in the story, when he's leading Isaac up Mount Moriah f- for the sacrifice, Isaac begins to sense that there's something weird because they have all the materials for the sacrifice without the animal to sacrifice. And he says, my father, and Abraham says, here I am. And it's, a, it's poignant and it's beautiful, but it's also paradoxical because you can't be unconditionally present for a God who wants you to kill your son while being unconditionally present for your son who doesn't want to be killed. And so the book takes that kind of model of a of paradoxical identities or conflicting identities and brings it into a contemporary setting. The whole book takes place over the course of about six weeks, all in Washington, D.C., in the contemporary moment. And there are two um, crises that structure the book. One is domestic, which is a cell phone that's discovered that reveals an affair. And one is an earth global, an earthquake in Israel that precipitates a war that becomes so extreme that the prime minister of Israel asks all Jews between the ages of 15 and 55 to come to fight for Israel's survival. And that's the story. But it's really a story about a family and a story about a marriage. And it's funny and, you know, why people find themselves where they are. Like with relation to who they thought they would be or where they thought they would end up. And also with relation to those who surround them. You know, why are there these distances, these silences? 
And it's also a book of questions, it seems like. Questions upon questions. I think so. There's a lot of arguments and a lot of questions. There aren't that many answers, and there's there's not an argument that the book is making, but I, like every page has its own version of an argument, whether it's political or sexual or parental or spousal um, or intellectual. There's a lot of people talking at each other and making cases and misunderstanding and digging in and yeah but i shouldn't take you totally literally with the like every page there's an argument like not a so you just mean it's throughout like everything um, it's not yeah, some sort I of structural thing no no no, 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 no. Okay. I, I i don't i don't do structural things i never would i don't i, I find those obnoxious like really you know, yeah i don't the idea that there's some meaning that the author knows and then he or she encodes it and waits for the reader to decode it or that's condescending. And I like books that are, um, conversational. I wanted to ask you about this line. It was, um, it was the feeling of not wanting to live in the world, even if it was the only place to live. So at the end of the book, Jacob, the hero is, is with his very old, very sick dog and contemplating the dog's death. And he takes that as an occasion to think about himself and his mortality and the choices he's made. And he talks about this idea that life is precious, which is like, you know, the most important of all ideas. If we could just hold that idea in our minds, we would be more appreciative, be more careful, make perhaps different choices. But it's a, despite how important it is, it's a very, very, very hard idea to self-generate. We basically only think it mm. when it's a birthday or New Year's Eve or when someone gets bad news at a doctor, you know, things, situations like that. And it's usually complemented by the idea that we live in the world. So life is precious, so I should make sandwiches at a soup kitchen every Saturday. But I live in the world where I have to like drive my kid to soccer practice and I have to go grocery shopping and I have to go into work. So I can't. Life is precious, so I should, you know, write long letters to my wife once a week. But I live in the world, and I'm really tired, and I kind of just want to sleep when I get home, and I do as much as I can. And this, what Jacob tries to do in the end of the book is to reconcile those two ideas, not to see them as oppositional, but, you know, life is precious, and I live in the world, to find some kind of, um, like, wholeness in those two ideas, in an integration um, would you would you mind reading for us a, sh a short short piece right now so we can get a sense of the prose before? Sure, we, we... there's all kinds of different prose in the book. Yes. Some of it is yes. very silly and irreverent. Some of it is sort of in the mind of a 13 year old. Some of it is extremely political, and some of it is um, it sort of goes all over the map. It can be very silly. It can be very serious. It can be very sad too. Yeah, this is maybe a little little on the sad side. It's um, about the marriage of Julia and Jacob. And in the book, I tell about these two visits that they make to an inn in Pennsylvania. One is when they get married and the other is 10 years later. And because they're going to the same place and repeating many of the same actions on purpose, it's, it gives them an opportunity to measure, you know, what's happened in the last 10 years. This comes between those two visits and it kind of is a, a little bit of a fast forward of, the, of their marriage. So Julia became pregnant with Sam a year later, then Max, then Benji. Her body changed, but Jacob's desire didn't. It was their volume of withholding that changed. They continued to have sex, although what had always arisen spontaneously came to require either an impetus 
like drunkenness or watching blue as the warmest color on Jacob's laptop in bed or Valentine's Day, or muscling through the self-consciousness and fear of embarrassment, which usually led to big orgasms and no kissing. They still occasionally said things that, the moment after coming, felt humiliating to the point of needing to physically remove oneself to get an unwanted glass of water. Each still masturbated to thoughts of the other, even if those fantasies bore no blood relationship to lived life and often included another other. But even the memory of that night in Pennsylvania had to be withheld, because it was a horizontal line on a doorframe. Look at how much we've changed. There were things that Jacob wanted, and he wanted them from Julia. But the possibility of sharing desires diminished as her need to hear them increased. And it was the same for her. They loved each other's company and would always choose it over either aloneness or the company of anyone else. But the more comfort they found together, the more life they shared, the more estranged they became from their inner lives. In the beginning, they were always either consuming each other or consuming the world together. Every child wants to see the marks ascend the doorframe, but how many couples are able to see progress in simply, simply staying the same? How many can make more money and not contemplate what could be bought with it? How many, approaching the end of childbearing years, can know that they already have the right number of children? Jacob and Julia were never ones to resist convention on principle, but neither could they have imagined becoming quite so conventional. They got a second car and second car insurance, joined a gym with a 20-page course offering, stopped doing their taxes themselves, occasionally sent back a bottle of wine, bought a house with side-by-side -side sinks and house insurance, doubled their toiletries, had a teak enclosure built for their garbage bins, replaced a stove with one that looked better, had a child and bought life insurance, ordered vitamins from California and mattresses from Sweden, bought organic clothing whose price amortized over the number of times it was worn, all but required them to have another child. And they had another child. They considered whether a rug would hold its value, knew which of everything was best, Miele vacuum, Vitamix blender, Ferro and ball paint, consumed Freudian amounts of sushi and worked harder so that they could pay the very best people to care for their children while they worked harder. And they had another child. Their inner lives were overwhelmed by all the living, not only in terms of the time and energy required by a family of five, but of which muscles were forced to strengthen and which withered. Julia's unwavering composure with her children had grown to resemble omnipatience, while her capacity to express urgency to her husband had shrunk to texted poems of the day. Jacob's magic trick of removing Julia's bra without his hands was replaced by the depressingly impressive ability to assemble a pack-and-play as he carried it up the stairs. Julia could clip newborn fingernails with her teeth and breastfeed while making a lasagna and move splinters without tweezers or pain and have the kids begging for the lice comb but she'd forgotten how to touch her husband. Jacob taught the kids the difference between farther and further, but no longer knew how to talk to his wife. Thanks, Jonathan. Um, we're going to take a short break, and then we'll come back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Jonathan Safran for is here. His novel, you just heard some of it, Here I Am. We'll be back. The meadow lark and the chim tree and the sparrow said to the sky in a flying spree for the sport of the pharaoh. Little while later, the Pharisees dragged a 
Living Writers today on the program, Jonathan Safran for is here, his novel, Here I Am. <laughs> here, 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 right? <laughs> here I am, here I am. Um, thanks for, again for bringing um, not only yourself <laughs> to the program, but picking the songs and for, for reading um, from Here I Am so we could get a sense of it. Um, and for writing it, because I guess it's, it takes a certain, um, you just... You can't, you have to carry on. You can't give up once you do find this idea, right? Like when you said it took a while to find what this, you wanted it to be. Well, you can give up. <laughs> and I've given up a lot of times. <laughs> Giving up is definitely an option. Um, but that's, you know, I think the hardest thing about writing actually is caring over time, you know, at a high level carrying the amount that is necessary to write something that feels like in a very full and ambitious personal expression. But, you know, everything always wants to move. It feels like everything always wants to move to like a diminished care, you know, like relationships or jobs. It's everything is fresh in the beginning and exciting in the beginning. And then you get used to it. And then, you become somewhat numb to it or you have a harder time seeing it or appreciating it and finding reasons to like finding ways to sustain excitement or passion for something, just care. And it, the hardest, you know, writing nice sentences is hard, but it's not the hardest thing in the world and creating characters who are interesting or structuring a plot that's dramatic they're very, very hard, but they're not nearly as hard as just caring about something over two years or three years or however long it takes, five years, ten years. Some people spend their whole lives writing one book. Mm. Um, and to maintain that care while you yourself are changing and the world is changing around you is really, really tough. So, and it's hard to know because like, for some pieces of, of art then, because you said it could be like your whole life even. Um, with one piece, even though the self is changing, which I feel like is interesting. So I feel like that's what we've been talking about a lot today. Yeah. yeah. This transform, the transforming self. Yeah. And how a book can, you know, want the book to be a record of, I do I want the book to be a record of the self, but also the self is created by the book. You know, it happens in both directions. Like, as I wrote this book, I was most proud when I felt that I could say, this is me. I don't mean this is me autobiographically. I don't mean it was cathartic or therapeutic. It just wasn't any of those things. But this is, um, you know, we know what, it, what a religious culture is. We know what a national culture is. We know what a familial culture is. But I think individuals have cultures as well. Like This is my culture. This is my um, sort of sensibility might be another word for it. And I want the book to reflect my culture and my sensibility. So 
I'm most proud when I feel like it's doing that. But in the course of writing, I'm also seeing myself. Um, Auden, the poet, said, I look at what I write so that I can see what I think. And when you see yourself, it changes you. You know, that's the reason people look in the mirror and like adjust themselves because <laughs> until you've seen yourself, you don't have cause for adjustments. And with a book, as you write it, you see yourself and you have cause for adjustments. And like see the spirit. Yeah. Yeah. See your own concerns and fears and hopes and predilections. And um, so having a book keep pace with you or trying to keep pace with the book is a tricky business. When do you know, like, when did you know Here I Am was finished? Uh, well, I mean, there's a sense in which it's not finished. In that sense is when I do a reading, I almost always mark a little something in the book, something that I'm not quite happy with or could be better. Or even the reading I just did, I didn't read it verbatim. I skipped a couple words and because it's just, I thought it was better the way I read it than the way I wrote it. Um, but but that's the separate compulsion. It, it is. Little... In terms of finishing the book... There, there was a point when, like, you know, every time I edited it, I would always find things I wanted to change, even down to when we were copy editing. I would constantly change things. But the returns were diminishing. You know, in the first few rounds of editing, I was making big changes, and they were smaller changes and smaller. And at a certain point, the changes don't justify the effort, and it can begin to feel like you're trying to drag the book behind you, like, to keep up with you. And that, like, hmm. you know, be foolish to take the clothes you wore as a 12-year-old to a tailor and say, could you make these fit? And there's a point wow. at which if a book stays with you too long, it feels like that. Like, it fit a different person. That's, yeah, that seems definitely right. Yeah. Hmm. And it's definitely itself, too, separate from you. Well, it becomes, like... It, it doesn't feel separate for me when I when the, when I finished it, but over time it, it takes on its own. It stays where it is, and I change, you know. And as I change, there's a greater and greater distance between me and it. Mm. But when you look back, when you read the other books, you see a record of self. Yeah, in the same way that when I look at photographs of myself when I'm younger, I see a record of self. That is, you know, really just by definition what it is. I can, when I look at my six-year-old self or my newborn self, you know, I don't share cells with that person. <laughs> li literally. There's not a cell in my body that that right. person had. Because is it like every seven years yeah. we're regenerating or, we uh, have or regenerating? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we have this trail of memories that like connect me and we have a name that connects mm -hmm. me. But experientially, it doesn't feel like there's all that much that connects us. So, you know, books are artifacts of selves, and everything is illuminated. It was an artifact of my 22, 23 year old self. And Extremely Loud was an artifact of my, whatever it was, 26, 27 year old self. And you keep leaving these. I mean, it's one of the things I'm most grateful for about writing is to have those artifacts. I remember when my first book came out of the printer. Not, not came out into the world. I looked at all these pages and I thought, what would have happened to all of this if I hadn't written it? You know, like, would all of those ideas and jokes and conversations and images uh, have just... Never been. Floated away and be lost? No, they'd never have been. Yeah. So having that record, like, you know, did you keep a diary at any point in your life? Not successfully. No. 
Well, you have old notebooks. You have you oh, have, notebooks. You have, of, you have fragments. Yeah. So most people, regardless of how embarrassed they are when they look back, are grateful to have that to look at because without it, it's very hard to remember or know or have, in a certain way, proof that you ever <laughs> were that person. Yeah, the mapping of the self in that way. Yeah. That's kind of like old friends to people who knew you from those times. It's they, exactly like that. Yeah. yeah. Thanks so much for coming to WCBN today to talk, Jonathan. I Thank you. It was a pleasure. really enjoyed it. Me and too. Come back anytime, okay, <laughs> if you're passing through Ann Arbor. On a Wednesday. Come, come and see us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you come for the live show. Yeah. Yeah. On a Wednesday. Yeah. <laughs> um, and many people will have seen you here in town, um, you know, because you came to read with Literati. And um, so we'll come back again. I invite you for, for all of us. <laughs> I, I hope I don't say all the same crap. <laughs> There's oh. a very good chance of it. Oh, no. Well, oh, no. Because <laughs> then no one will know you said it uh, here first. We'll know. It's on record. Mm. We've got a record. Um, Timestamp it. That's right. <laughs> we will. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, thanks to everyone out there for listening. Many, many thanks to Jonathan Safran for for being here today with his latest novel, Here I Am. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. right and connect. Reaching for the end zone. Touchdown, Michigan. Amara Darba. Gardner takes a hand off to Smith. Looking.
firing. Jake Buck, one-handed catch. He caught it. Unbelievable catch. Hello and welcome to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We are back here today with a full house. I'm your host, Andrew Hausman, along with Alec Geese, uh, Jeff, Nate, and Jeremy Parks. So we have a full house here today. And we're talking Strictly Sports. This is the Daily Sports Report, and we're going to be with start off with Strictly Sports. We're going to jump... Um, First, with the college football playoff rankings, the second rankings came out last night um, on ESPN. Not a whole lot of surprise, but we're going to jump into those. And then we're going to go into an interesting discussion we were talking about um, before the show, just top five student-athletes in Michigan history, 